0: Have you ever been uh, falsely accused or treated with injustice? How did you respond to the one who was making those false accusations and and mistreating you? Did you let him have it with a verbal barrage that would make any sailor proud? (laughs) Uh, Did you respond well publicly? but secretly hate that individual in your heart? Did you melt into a pity party? Did you get upset with God, maybe even angry with him for allowing this injustice and mistreatment to happen to you? Did you thank God for it? and sing praises to him in the midst of it. <laughs> psalm 7 was written when King David was falsely accused by someone. He calls Cush the Benjaminite. And as we read it, the, the psalm shows us King David's responses and his reasons. My prayer as we study Psalm 7 this morning is that we will all take refuge in the Lord because he always upholds justice. You have your copy of God's word ready? Is it open to Psalm 7? That's our sermon text for today. Please find uh, the Bible at your feet, Turn to Psalm 7. Maybe you brought your ESV journal with you. But let's read Psalm 7. A shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemies without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends." I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. That's God's word. Well, from the inscription of Psalm 7, we notice that it is a song written and sung by King David concern a specific historical event. Do you see the inscription? The words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So as good Bible students, we naturally want to get the background of that story. And so we search our Bibles for the story of Cush, the Benjaminite. And unfortunately, there is no no biblical record of anyone by that name. So we're sort of left to piece the puzzle together from Psalm 7 itself. Did you do that this week as you read the sermon text in preparation for our study this morning? What we know for sure is that Cush was seen as David's enemy and his words were false accusations. First of all, look in the text here. You'll see that Cush was David's enemy. Look in verse 1. Cush was pursuing David. Verse 2, like a lion trying to tear him apart and rend him in pieces. Verse 5 and 6, David specifically refers to him as my enemy. And verse 9 and following, David refers to him as an evil and a wicked individual. And Cush's war against King David was a war of words in the form of false accusations. How do we know that? Well, first of all, it's a war of words. We know that because even the inscription says it's about the words of Cush. But look at verse 3 through 5. We notice that David is declaring that he's innocent of these accusations. Verse 3, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands... If I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then verse 5, he says, let the enemy pursue my soul, overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. I would totally deserve it if these things were true. But we'll find out from the rest of the psalm that they're not true. Cush was at war with the king, making false accusations against him publicly. So, since we don't have a historical record of Cush the Benjaminite, several options seem reasonable. Option number one, this is a guy named Cush who's a Benjaminite, and Psalm 7 is the only historical record that we have him of him. All right, plain and simple. Option number one. I'm quite fine with that. Option number two. This could actually be about King Saul. You'll remember that King Saul was the king of Israel before David became king, and Saul was a Benjaminite, and his father's name was Kish, not Cush. So we don't think it's him, but you know, maybe. Maybe. But we do know that Saul pursued David like a lion, tried to tear him apart, and did this for several years. And it was a very trying time for David. Might be King Saul. Option number three uh, resonates with me a lot. During Absalom's insurrection, which you'll remember, Psalm 3, 4, five, six, and seven, all seem to be within the context of the the insurrection and grievous uh, betrayal of his own son. During Absalom's insurrection, the Benjaminites, who were loyal to King Saul, become loyal to Absalom and throw their weight in with the insurrection, and they cause quite a bit of trouble for King David, particularly public accusations against him. So it is very likely that Cush the Benjaminite was one of those Benjaminites, like two others that are named uh, in the historical record. So, for example, you can read this later today, 2 Samuel 16, a guy named Shimei, cursed David vehemently and threw stones at David and his entourage as they were passing by. And of course, you don't throw stones at the king, but David told his mighty men to stand down and leave him alone. Here's exactly what David told the men. Remember, within the context of Absalom's insurrection, here's this guy, a Benjaminite, throwing rocks at him. David says, To his mighty men, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What a perspective. So I'm not suggesting that Cush is the same as Shimei. I'm saying he could be another guy who accused David publicly. Um, After the insurrection of Absalom, 2 Samuel 20, another guy named Sheba, who was a Benjaminite, described as a worthless man, led another public insurrection against King David and ordered his men, uh, but, but this time King David ordered his men to put down that erection, um, <laughs> insurrection because, quote, Sheba will do us more harm than Absalom. That's crazy to think that this guy Sheba would do even more harm than his own son. So within that whole historical context of Psalm 3 through 7. I think David probably fits this one in there. Cush was probably during that time period, but I'm quite content to think this is just a guy named Cush who was a Benjaminite and Psalm 7 is about him. We don't have any more information than that, but we do know that this was one of many times that King David was falsely accused and mistreated. Have you ever been there, falsely accused, mistreated, maybe at school or at work, maybe by a friend or a family member, maybe even within your own marriage? Maybe you were falsely accused privately, maybe publicly, and it did harm to your reputation as it was David here. Well, just as a regular individual, just as a person, and then even more specifically as a pastor, I've been falsely accused a few times. I can relate with what's going on here in this text. Each time it has been a very difficult experience. And the encouragement from Psalm 7 this week, for me personally, is seeing how David responded and why. So that's what's going to take up the rest of our sermon time together. We're going to see four responses from David, and then we're going to see four reasons for those responses. And then at the end of the sermon, I'd like to make some applications for me and you personally. All right. First of all, take a look at Psalm 7, and we'll see four responses to false accusations and injustice. From verses one and two, we see first of all, that David took refuge in the Lord. You see that? Verse one? "O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers, and deliver me, lest like a lion, they tear apart my soul, rending it in pieces with none to deliver." feeling as if he were being mauled by a lion, King David prays and he takes refuge in the Lord. Friends, let's follow David's lead in that. When you experience difficulty, we too can pray and take refuge in the Lord. David prayed, look there, verse one. Oh Lord, distant God out there somewhere. No, O oh, Lord, my God. Verse 3, O oh, Lord, my God. God is personal. God invites us to call on him in times of trouble. When we feel as though our soul is being torn apart by the lion of trouble. And David took refuge. There in verse 1, in you do I take refuge. Save me, deliver me. King David ran to God for help. The, the concept of taking refuge means that he is he's sheltering inside. He's hiding in God. That means that he's trusting God with his circumstances and he's now submitting to God and totally depending on God to figure this out in his time. Taking refuge in God means that we don't take matters into our own hands. Alec Motier says, one of the very fundamental lessons emerges from a simple observation. In whatever form trouble comes, its tendency is to drive us inward, to make us find some corner in which to moan over our lot, marvel at how unfair life is, chew the fat of our own misery. David is too practical to say, forget about your problems. Neither his nor our difficulties are negligible or inconsequential. No, don't forget about your troubles. Rather, face and describe them as these psalms of lament do. But always... Outweigh the problems, the hurts, the sorrows, whatever you're experiencing by the great truths about the Lord and by the practice of prayer and praise. Response number one, David took refuge in the Lord. Response number two, what does David do when he's being falsely accused? when he's being mistreated, when this just isn't right. Verse 3 through 5, response number 2, David examined himself. What were the um, accusations that were being leveled against him? Verse 4, that King David had, one, repaid his friend with evil, and two, plundered his enemies without cause, In other words, the king is not a just man. Verse 3 through 5, David is examining himself. Verse 3, if I have done wrong, then I deserve this thrashing that I'm getting from my enemy, the lion. But in verse 3 through 5, David is also pleading his innocence. And we know that for sure because of verse 8, what comes after. Look at verse 8. David invites God to judge him in this matter along with his accuser. And David claims to be, quote, righteous and a man of integrity. Look at verse 8. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Did you ever find those statements in the Psalms to be something that you couldn't just get your head around? I was helped this week by Alec Motier again, who said, Statements like this in the Psalms must always be kept in context. This is not a claim to sinless perfection, but to innocence in the present circumstances. David is pleading his innocence. He's not guilty of the charges that are being brought against him. But let's not overlook the fact that these accusations, one of David's first responses was to examine himself. Friends, any time we're accused of something, any time that happens, humility calls us to self-examination. Which one of us is beyond the possibility. William Plummer says, Humility demands a judgment of ourselves not below the truth, nor above it, but according to it. So anytime we face accusations, even false ones, several things are happening all at the same time. No, number one, the accusation might be completely true. It might be completely false or it might be a mixture of truth and error, right? Anytime an accusation is made against us, number two, how we respond to the accusation is incredibly important. And unfortunately, our first response is often self-defense and anger. And so even though we might be innocent of the accusation, we become guilty by our own response because we sin in responding to whatever mistreatment is coming at us or false accusation. Number three, God knows. God knows whether these accusations are true or false. And God is allowing it to accomplish his purposes in you and through you. These things would not be happening right now unless your sovereign God was allowing it. And if it's false, as it is here with King David, then God will make this right in the end. You can rest in that and allow him to take care of this. You can take refuge in God. And so when any accusation, true or false, comes, a godly response requires humility. A godly response requires great humility. Humility encourages First of all, us to examine ourselves, asking what about this accusation is true? What's false? What do I need to learn through this? How can I respond so as to display the character of Christ in me? Humility encourages us to also invite The opinion of maybe one other close to us about this, maybe a spouse, really good Christian friend. Someone is making an accusation against you and there's a really good chance that you think you're innocent. But we all have blind spots, don't we? They might see something that we can't see and humility listens and learns Pride maintains our innocence to the death. Here, response number two David examined himself with humility, and he was confident of God's knowledge. So, response number three, verses 6 through 16 David called for justice. David called for justice. Just look at the text there. I'm, gonna, I'm going to just highlight a few things because I want to deal with this more thoroughly in just a moment. David calls for justice. Verse 6 through 9, he calls on the Lord. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. David calls on the Lord to judge his enemy, and he calls on the Lord to judge him. In fact, he calls on the Lord to judge all people everywhere. Because in verse 7, he says he summons the people to assemble and watch and learn Friends, that's where we are this morning. We're part of that assembly who's watching God judge. And we're learning from it. Look at verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you and over it, over this trial, reign on high. In verse 10 and 11, David declares his confidence in this trial. Verse 10, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. And then in verse 12 through 16, David warns the wicked of judgment, in effect, calling all of us to a life of repentance and obedience to the Lord. David calls for justice. And then in verse 17, Psalm 7 ends with David's fourth response. I suggest it's while this is still going on. Not many years after when he's no longer feeling torn apart by a lion. And I suggest that because he says, I will, I will as if this is going on, but here's my prayer of faith. I will do this. In verse 17, David responds by praising the Lord for justice that hasn't even happened yet. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David is giving thanks to the Lord for what Feels like being mauled by a lion. David is privately singing praise to the Lord about something that is publicly bringing him disgrace. How's that possible? Seriously. How is it possible that King David responded so well? He takes refuge in the Lord. He examines himself. He calls for justice and he praises the Lord for the justice, likely while it's still being worked out and not even accomplished yet. How did he respond so well? I suggest it's because David had confidence That the Lord upholds justice. Psalm seven gives us four reasons for David's confidence. Four reasons why he responded so well to being mistreated in the workplace by being ridiculed at school, by being rejected by people who have no right or reason to reject you. Four reasons. David responded with confidence. And so can we. Number one. David responded with confidence because he knew. The Lord is a righteous judge. The whole of this psalm holds up not just David's response, but a righteous God. God who is a God of justice. Psalm 7 gives us a theology of the justice of God. The Lord is a righteous judge. Look at verse 11. God is a righteous judge. He's the righteous judge that presides over the supreme court of the universe. Look at verse 17. It's the name of the Lord, what? The Most High. No other higher judge. No other higher God. William Plummer says these names show supreme reverence. They convey recognition of God's infinite perfection and his gracious relations with his covenant people. God reigns as the righteous judge In the supreme court of the universe. The Lord judges with absolute righteousness. Look at verse 17. This is why God deserves glory. Deserves it. It's due His name in verse 17. Do you see that? I will give to the Lord the thanks due His righteousness. The Lord judges with absolute righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? It's used six different times in this psalm. Righteousness is basically just conformity to, to a moral or ethical standard. And what we understand from this psalm and the rest of the Bible is that the standard is based on the nature and the will of God himself. God is righteous, always consistent with his own character. Psalm 145. The Lord is a righteous. He is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. First John 1. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Paul tells us in Romans 7 that what comes out of God, his law, is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The Lord is a righteous judge who Judges with absolute righteousness in every situation and over every person without partiality. Verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples, all of them. Judge me. O Lord, David says, verse nine, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. God judges the nations of the earth. He judges his people individually. He judges the evil and will bring it to an end because the Lord is a righteous judge. And in verse nine, it tells us something about God that isn't true. About any of the judges that Will or Abby stand before. The Lord judges the mind and heart of man. Do you see that in verse 9? You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. No faults are hidden from God's sight because He tests the mind and the heart, which is a reference to the innermost person and no one but God can know that the Lord is a righteous judge and based on God uh, on David's knowledge of God as a righteous judge he responds what else was behind his responses number 2 David responds with confidence because the Lord has appointed a judgment. Cush is running around, dragging my name and my glory as the king through the mud. God, when are you going to put an end to this? God says to him, I've appointed a judgment. There's a day coming. I'd like for that day to be today, Lord. I know. I got more to work out here. The Lord has appointed a judgment. Look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, lift up yourself. Why is David calling on God to to arise and lift himself up and awake? Because it feels like God's not doing anything right now. You ever been there? Why does does God let this happen? Verse 6. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you reign over that judgment on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord. Friends, here's what's true about that judgment day. It was not just an Old Testament thing. Acts chapter 17 says God commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who do you think that is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ to whom judgment has been given. Over all the nations. The Lord is not only a righteous judge. He has has appointed a judgment. And number three. Why does David respond so well? Because he has confidence that the Lord ensures justice for the upright. God ensures that the upright will have their day in court. Verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is the righteous judge who protects the innocent who comes to the aid of the weak, the poor, or the afflicted, those who are being falsely accused and wrongfully treated. And he does this with his saving shield. The Lord protects his own because they're upright in heart. Derek Kidner said David had placed himself in God's hands where there is peace, whatever the outcome. David had confidence in verse 10 and 11 that God is the one who will vindicate him in the end. And so he didn't have to take matters into his own hands here and now. God will work this out. And he had this confidence because he knew something about God. He knew that God felt the same about this even more than he did. God is a righteous judge and a God who what? Feels indignation every day. God felt the same way about the false accusations and injustice that David was experiencing. And God was going to do something about it. David trusted that. Which leads me to David's final reason. Number four. How was it that David responded so well with with such confidence? Because the Lord executes justice on the unrepentant. Verse 12 through 16. The Lord executes justice on the unrepentant. Just look at the imagery here. Read again verse 12 through 16. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This wicked man makes a pit, digs it out. And falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head. And on his own skull his violence descends. God hates evil. Friends, we need to know that about our God. He hates evil. I'm afraid we've grown far too comfortable with evil. He feels indignation every day. One commentator says, as God's mercies are new every morning toward his covenant people, so his anger is new every morning against the wicked. Look at verse 12 and 13. God will judge the what? The unrepentant. The sword and the bow together picture the inescapability of divine judgment. Alec Motier says the sword for those who are near, a bow for those who are at distance. Plummer adds, when God chooses, he can easily destroy his foes. His weapons are Ready. God's wrath against persecutors burns with dreadful intensity. God will execute justice on those who do not repent. Look at verse 14. The wicked are pregnant with sin. And they give birth to evil. James 1 taught us that earlier, didn't it? It taught us about temptation, that it naturally comes within our sinful heart. And just like a pregnancy, sinful desires conceive and give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it brings death. Which Psalm 7 goes on to describe in verse 15 and 16. What does sin do? It always comes home to roost. Always, always comes home to roost. Evil brings its own judgment. Do you see that in verse 15 and 16? The Lord executes justice on the unrepentant, and that doesn't necessarily wait until after some judgment, some time. Because very often, it's their own wicked plans that end up like verse 15 and 16. The stones, the pit. So you can just imagine back in the, the ancient times, they would dig a pit either to trap an animal or in war, and they would probably put stakes down in there. The pit that this evil one has dug to, to trap David, he falls into himself. The stones that he has placed high above, they end up falling down on his own head. Martin Luther says, this is the incomprehensible nature of the divine judgment, that God catches the wicked with their own plots and leads them into the destruction which they had themselves devised. If these things are so in this life where nothing is finished, what may we expect in the next? The Lord not only ensures justice for the upright, but he executes justice on the unrepentant. That does two things to us, friends. Number one, that tells us that we don't have to take matters into our own hands. God is ready to handle this. Number two, what we have seen here today is a spine-chilling call to repentance for every single person in this room. God hates evil, even the evil of his people. Evil always comes home to roost, even on his own people. We we can't sin and expect not to experience the consequences of it. But here is the beautiful gospel fulfillment of Psalm 7. This is not just about King David. What we see here this morning is the justice of God at work in the gospel of King Jesus. Though King Jesus was completely innocent, Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was sentenced to death. Jesus was executed on a cross and God did not save him from it because God was accomplishing his justice so that he could save you and me. God was accomplishing the justice of substitutionary atonement. Where the innocent, like a lamb, is substituted as a sacrifice for the guilty. God satisfied the fury of his wrath against our sin. So that there was nothing left but grace. For whom? Those who will, what's the word, friends? Repent. Repent and believe that Jesus is God's all-sufficient Savior. The King of His kingdom. Who bore His wrath to save all of God's people. Friends, one of the great wonders of the gospel is how grace and justice join to point to mercy's store. And when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. This is a call to repentance. This is a warning, not just to the wicked, but to the unrepentant. If this was just a warning to the wicked, we'd all be the object of God's ready bow. But God has sent a savior, a warrior king, who extinguished his wrath through the cross and the resurrection. Our King Jesus now calls us to come to him. In faith and repentance. Turn away from your sin. Come to me. And the same gospel that calls us to repent and believe. Empowers us to do it. Not just once for all, but every day. And the gospel promises that those who repent will find mercy and grace in Christ rather than the judgment that our sins deserved so are you repentant may by god's grace you be repentant that's the justice of god at work and the gospel of King Jesus. I, I suggest that we also see the gospel, I mean, the uh, justice of God at work in the church of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, just as King David was the king of his kingdom. King Jesus is the king of his kingdom, the the Lord of his church. And We find ourselves here not afraid to to align ourselves with King Jesus But King Jesus told us, if you align yourself with me, you should expect false accusations and persecution. You should expect to be treated with injustice. You should expect it. Just as the world hates me, they will hate you, church. But we don't have to be afraid to align with King Jesus because what we see from Psalm 7 here is that when persecution comes, whether it's mild or severe, the church has the promise of ultimate justice. God ensures justice for whom? The upright. And you've been made upright. You've been made righteous in Christ. And God ensures that his church will triumph. And that all of her persecutors will be the object of God's fiery judgment. And so. When the church, whether here or around the world, experiences injustice, alienation, persecution, whether it's from your own family or even in your own office, when people hate you just because you're with Jesus. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. God feels it. Jesus is being persecuted when you, as his church, are being persecuted. And there's coming a day. One final application. What we see here is the justice of God and just me and you as individual Christians. Listen, we're going to experience false accusations. Truth is, most of the time, they have a lot of truth in them, don't they? Sometimes we hand people the stones that they end up throwing at us. I sure have over the years. But since we believe that God is a righteous judge, we don't have to pick up those stones and throw them back. We can take refuge in God. We can examine ourselves. We can actually pray to God and ask him to work out his justice. And we can wait. Rather than having a pity party. Rather than smiling publicly and seething in hatred privately, we can give thanks and sing praises to God because God is God enough to use even this to accomplish good in you and through you. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as something strange was happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. May we respond well, (laughs) even in the face of false accusations and mistreatment, because God Always upholds justice. It may not be now. But it will happen in the end. He promises. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for. Satisfying your justice through the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can follow our King into the right kind of responses. And I pray that you would be glorified as we respond well. I pray that you would be glorified as we bless those who persecute us, as we love our enemies, as we do not return evil for evil, but only return good. I pray that people would see Jesus in us even when we feel like we're being torn apart by difficulty. May you be glorified in your church, corporately, globally, and in each one of us individually. You are do this because of your righteousness. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.